Why should I be frightened of dying? You know reason for it, you better go sometimes. Hello, welcome to the Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I have a new microphone, so hopefully I sound a little more NPR-ish radio. It's a uh, RE20 microphone, which is often used in, in radio and podcasting, so I hope it sounds good. I quite like it. But I'm excited today because we are going to get into a very interesting near-death experience. This one is coming from Sandra. It almost makes a trilogy of S-named near-death experiences with Selena, Sarah, and now Sandra. We'll have to see about the next one. But this one is fascinating because there's a particular image or metaphor which appears in her experience, which uh, is very close to and and its allusions to particular Middle Eastern um, beliefs about the afterlife and Zoroastrianism and Islam. Although Sandra is a Christian, it's it's very interesting and I'm excited to get into it. The, I guess the outside of her experience is a, a little vague. She said she had an accident, doesn't get into anything more than that. The experience itself occurred uh, in October of 1991, so quite a while ago. And this was posted on the nderf.org website, and I will share the link in the episode description. Highly, highly recommend you go check it out. It's, it's a very cool place. They have tons of near-death experiences, and I can't thank, thank them enough for the work they do in compiling all of them. So... I guess the only other thing I have is I have a website now. It's there's not a whole lot that's on there. It's it's pretty basic, but it's something. So if you ever want to check it out, it can give you some different links of places to go listen to it if you're trying to branch out into <laughs> other mediums of of listening to the podcast, but um it's a cool thing that I've wanted to do for a while, so it's there. So, without any further ado, This is Sandra's near-death experience. There was an accident. While in the emergency room, I could not be moved to x-ray or given pain medication because I was later told they could not get my heart under control. I was a person who believed she had nothing to live for so death would have been welcomed, although never intentional. As I lay there, I began to feel very light. I felt as if I were floating on clouds, but not. I looked around and saw what appeared to be a sort of fog. It was the color of storm clouds, you know, some light, some dark, and soft. I looked down to see my hands, and they weren't there. Then I looked for my body, but it wasn't there either. I was there, but not there. The thing that stood out the most to me at that time was how peaceful it all felt. There was no pain or sorrow, no happiness, no sadness, no tears, no laughter, no hot or cold, no anger 
no nothing. I later began to lovingly describe this as a place of nothing. I don't know how long I floated, but it seemed a long time to me. So long that I became antsy. At one point, I felt as if I were walking on a balance beam. The kind used in gymnastics, although I never saw it. I slid my feet along it for fear that if I picked up the right foot or the left, somehow it would determine what was to become of me, heaven or hell. Screwy, I know. Finally, I came to the end of the beam and stood there in the fog, looked up toward heaven and cried out, Help me! Please help me! Either bring me back, or for pity's sake, let me go, but please don't leave me here. The next thing I saw came quickly, like the next scene in a movie. I was sitting on the floor of a cave. It was pitch black behind me, and the floor was cold and damp, jagged granite. I could hear water trickling down the wall behind me, and in front of me there was an opening. I couldn't look directly at it because the light was shining through it so brightly. As I sat there, I looked at the spot where the light faded to an end. There was a man standing. He had his hand held out to me, and he spoke to me so softly that I really had to listen or I could have missed his words. He said, come, take my hand. I remember giving a half-hearted attempt at reaching him and realizing somehow that I couldn't feel anything from the waist down. He stood about eight feet from where I sat, and I knew I couldn't reach him. So I began to cry and I said, I can't reach you. His voice got firmer as he in more of a demand than a request repeated, take my hand. This time I tried as hard as I could to stretch my upper body enough to reach him, but I lost my balance, fell to the floor, and hit my face. Then I began to sob and I said, I can't, I can't reach you, you've got to help me, please help me. Then he said very calmly, you've got to try, you must never stop trying. The next thing I saw was a series of bright lights passing overhead as I regained consciousness and they were rushing me to the x-ray. Okay, so that was Sandra's near-death experience. Before we get started with some of our discussion, I wanted to read a few of the questions that come at the end of every story on the nderf.org website. Did time seem to speed up or slow down? Everything seemed to be happening at once, or time stopped or lost all meaning. I don't know how long my experience lasted. It seemed as if it were a long, long time, although something told me it wasn't. Time has no meaning in that consciousness. A day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as a day. I know I had the accident around 7 p.m., and it was all night before I could be moved, but how long the actual event lasted, I just couldn't tell you. It seemed to me that the time spent in the place of nothing was an eternity, 
but once I'd made my mind up not to be there, everything speeded up. The encounter in the cave seemed as if it were a matter of seconds. Did your vision differ in any way from normal? The fog. I don't know how to describe it, but it was all around me, and the differences in contrast very obvious. The light was as bright and hard to look at as looking directly into the sun. I have in everyday life zero depth perception, yet it was clear to me that the man I saw was eight feet from me, and ten feet from the opening where the light shone through. The walls ended approximately three feet behind me, and five feet to my right, two feet to my left. I am nearsighted, but things were acutely clear. Except for the man, I never saw his face because the light was shining on his back as he faced me. His silhouette was black, the edges of which were faded from the brightness behind him. I could see nearly the entire circle around me, except directly behind me, where it was the blackest black of night. Yes, I'd say my vision was quite clear. Did you encounter or become aware of any deceased or alive beings? Yes, where the light met the dark, a man stood, inside the cave. I did not know this man, or if I did, I didn't recognize him. I could only see his silhouette. He was very tall, with huge shoulders and big hands. He had long, wavy black hair. He asked me to take his hand. When I cried to him that I couldn't reach him, he became more assertive and demanded I take his hand. When I yet could not reach him again and hurt myself trying, he became calm and told me I had to try. I must never stop trying. Did you see an unearthly light? Yes, the light was as bright as the summer sun, except it was clearly white, not yellow like the sun. It came in through the opening like a spotlight set on a mark. It did not light the whole room. It only brightened its own path. It reminded me of the way the sun's rays look when they pierce a cloud, only more compact. What emotions did you feel during the experience? First, peace, calmness, I'd say a sort of blissfulness. Then I became anxious. A fear of bringing on my own fate, an unwillingness to make a choice. Fear also of being left in an in-between world. An emotional need to be able to touch that hand and take my life back. A feeling of worth, something I needed to do. Crying out of helplessness. Did you reach a boundary or limiting physical structure? Yes, I consider my boundary being the cave and my inability to reach the hand I so desperately wanted to hold, along with my inability to move from where I sat or walk into the light. Somehow, I believe that if I could have reached that hand, he would have led me through the opening into the light. This would have been eternal happiness. I believe I cried because I was sad that I had to go back and would not be allowed to walk in the light at that time. Are there one or several parts of your experience that are especially meaningful or significant to you? Yes, meaningful. 
I think that I was shown that death is not to be feared, but to be looked forward to when the time is right. Timing is everything. The place of nothing showed me the peaceful place that waits for each of us. I also learned from the man that if you want something bad enough, it's worth fighting for. You can't just give up because something is too difficult. Also, I heard the voice of the man several months later while in a drug-induced sleep, which led me into a new life that I'd never dreamed of before any of this happened. It caused me to walk away from a 24-year abusive marriage and go 1,500 miles to start over, away from that kind of life. God did not bring me back so I could continue to get beat up and abused. Meaningful? Significant? Yes, a place of blissful peace and words of encouragement. I think above everything else, those two happenings were God's message to me that it was time to begin again. What did you believe about the reality of your experience shortly after it happened? Experience was definitely real. I couldn't get it off my mind. I knew if I spoke of it, people would think I was crazy. One thing that stood out was that in the cave, I came to realize I couldn't feel my legs from the waist down. When I awoke, it was true. I thank God feeling came back after three months. I had a peacefulness that had never existed before the experience. I had an urge to fight, and fight I did. Every time I thought I couldn't do something, I heard those words echo in my brain. You've got to try. You must never stop trying. For me, nothing could ever compare to the reality of that experience. Nor will I ever forget one minute detail. What do you believe about the reality of your experience now? Experience was definitely real. I still believe that nothing so real could top that experience. Many coincidences happened in conjunction with the experience. One thing after the other have appeared that make me know beyond any doubt that what happened was, and still is, a very real event in my life. It's very hard to believe that it happened 16 years ago. It seems like yesterday to me. As I said, it prompted me to leave my abusive husband. Gave me the courage to strike out on my own and to fight back. Made me to realize that God has a higher purpose for my life. For a while, I was always in a hurry. I wanted everything right now. I have since learned that everything comes in its own time, and I must be patient. The voice I heard, I heard again, which led me into martial arts training, and now I teach people how to stay calm and centered in the face of turmoil. I was led to my martial arts teacher by the voice that I heard while sleeping which was the voice of the man in the cave. In going to this teacher, I was reunited with my two sons, whom I'd not seen in 17 years. They were there where the teacher was. If anyone were to try to dispute this experience, I would have to laugh at them, because I know it happened, just as I said it did. My life alone is living proof of it. Okay. So I thought those answers just added a little more context to her experience, just helped to flesh it out a little bit. 
and we will refer back to them as we go through our discussion of it. I suppose the best place to start is is at the beginning. There is no clear uh, description of the accident that caused this near-death experience. She just says that there was an accident. So that's a little bit vague, but that's perfectly okay. So there's not a, a whole lot of preamble into going into the events that led up to the experience itself. But she mentions that she's lying in the in the hospital and she starts to feel light as if she was floating, so to speak. And and one interesting detail is is that she talks about that she didn't think that she had anything to live for. She says, uh, I was a person who believed she had nothing to live for, so death would have been welcomed, although never intentional. I thought that was an interesting comment to make because where she ends up, at least at the start of her experience, is a sort of ambivalent place. Uh, it it has a certain, <laughs> I don't know, it's, it seems rather balanced in its dark and light colors and and there's nothing going on there. So she says that there's a, a almost a, a perfect balance between the light and the dark of these storm clouds in this fog. And she says that there's there's no happiness, there's no sadness, there's no laughter, there's no tears. She calls it the place of nothing. And so it seems like this ultimate sort of ambivalence, uh, I don't know, personified or, or imagined into a place. She's floating there and what she says feels like an eternity. Now, just a couple details that we can go through I suppose the the fact that she describes this fog and this place that she was in, although she says it's a place of nothing, she describes uh, the surrounding area as, as storm clouds in her description, which I thought was interesting because that suggests a sort of fullness or, I, I don't know, opportunity for something to happen, opportunity for there to be rain, for there to be flow, for a release of energy. Although while she's there, there's nothing going on, right? She's floating and she says, she describes it as peaceful, um, which is an interesting description. Uh, I almost imagine that's it might be akin to the certain Buddhist ideas of, of of non-attachment, of of emptiness, of finding that kind of peace where there's there's not doesn't seem that that there's any strong emotions going on or anything, and and one is completely at peace, although devoid of of happiness, sadness, you name it. Another interesting detail is that she she mentions that she looks down to see. She has hands or her body, and it doesn't appear that she does. And and that's one thing that is is somewhat uh, I don't know raises some questions. In that later on, she seems to be 
walking along a balance beam using her feet, but so in, at one point in the experience, she does not seem to have a body. She's part of this fog, this these clouds, and it's quite peaceful. But then, as the experience itself changes, it it I don't know. Maybe she morphs into having some form to to enact that particular that part of the experience. But again, it's 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 interesting that she she describes it as she's in there for like an eternity. There's nothing going on since she calls it the place of nothing, right? There's nothing going on. But then she says she starts to get antsy. And, and so that, what that suggests is that there is this desire for something to happen on her part or, or the part of the experience or both. And, and and so there is this desire for some kind of dy- dynamic or or some action something to happen that she wasn't content just to float there indefinitely perhaps that you know can be tied in with the idea of the energy present in the storm clouds the way she described her surroundings that there is this potential although she didn't act on it for seemingly a while that nothing was happening. She, she had this desire within her to move out of it or, or to move on to the next thing. And what happens next I found fascinating. The fact that she starts to move along this balance beam, right? And, and there's so much there. For one, uh, I guess to start out, it's it's almost like a a physical metaphor or a physical symbol that she's enacting in this process. You know, sometimes when we talk about these experiences, we talk about you know the image of how something appears or what is communicated, but here she's actually acting it out, embodying what it represents, and the. The idea of balance, I mean, that goes all the way down. That's the the problem of the, the opposites, balancing something. I mean, you can go yin-yang. I mean, it's it's endless the comparisons you can make with the idea of balance. I mean, mathematical equations, you, everything comes down to balance. It's it's such a ubiquitous idea and symbol in, you know, in both nature and and culture. And and so it's it's something almost I would say inexhaustible that I could spend the whole rest of this you know podcast talking about it. But there are a lot of interesting implications that arise out of this this scene that happens. For one, the. The experience itself or her own doing is, is, like I said, embodying this metaphor that she's moving foot over foot across this balance beam. And that, that's, that's something so deep. It's, it's, 
it's literally reaching down into our physical movements to enact something symbolic. I mean, perhaps that's, that could be the idea of ritual itself to, to using a, a action, a, a physical embodiment to represent something symbolic. I mean, I, I think that might be as good a definition as any. But the fact that the experience itself, if, if that is what's driving it, or if it's her doing, one or the other, but the experience is, is playing along with this idea of, of having this balance beam, which it's like the highest, highest mental idea of, of what balance could be and harmony and all this thing is, is reaching down all the way through all the, these levels of, of meaning and analysis that into something unconscious and, and embodied, reaching down into, into our physiology and to our sensory motor <laughs> movements to act out this this idea and that's that's incredible i mean that's something that i've i've um gotten from listening to a series of lectures by john verveke who's a cognitive scientist at um university of toronto and he has this great course called um awakening from the meaning meaning crisis where he talks about some of these ideas that this symbol unites, um, I don't know, the physical and the non-physical in, in an amazing way. And, and we certainly get that in this case. And just to, to further illustrate what, what she is, she is um, going through, she, she mentions that she feels like She's sliding her feet along, along this balance beam. And she's doing it very carefully because she feels like if the right or the left foot should falter or, or miss its step, it's the difference between heaven and hell. One thing that I could point out there is that she she mentions the right and left respectively to heaven and hell one after the other. That could just be her way of speaking or it could um, allude to the idea that our directions of right and left have certain symbolic meanings, the right being associated with the good or, or heaven, the left being associated with that which is strange, evil, unknown, um, or hell. So I thought that was that was interesting, but it it really is like I I often bring up this this idea of of bringing to the bringing together the opposites, which is is rife throughout her entire experience. Even from the light and dark clouds, both are present, and they seem to sort of cancel each other out. And that there's no good, there's no bad. It's just a place of nothing. And here having to toe this this fine line between the presumably heaven and presumably hell in her and in this embodied uh, movement as a as a as, as an embodied metaphor it's 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 amazing and so i think that what she's experiencing there is almost 
as much as a, a metaphor of balance and harmony and bringing together the opposites, it also alludes to consciousness in that there's this feeling or this uh, sense that she has to choose and choosing choosing between one action or the other could very much be a choice between heaven and hell. And I, I know that's, I'm speaking somewhat poetically there, but but really in any ethical choice, to some degree we could tilt the world a little closer to heaven or tilt the world a little bit closer to hell. And so this idea of, of, of balancing those choices, or, or that, <laughs> those options, eventually she has to get a choice and or make a choice. And I think that is represented by the uh, fact that she reaches the end, reaches the end of the balance beam and, and then calls out for help. Now, so there's, there seems to be this inability to make a choice on her part, or maybe she doesn't know which one is which. And so she calls upon the experience, the God, uh, the divine, something to help. And she just says, please just help me. What does she say? Let me read it exactly. She says, help me, please help me. Either bring me back or for pity's sake, let me go, but please don't leave me here. So in this place of nothing, she is ultimately driven by some, some sense of energy, dynamism to make a choice or to call on the divine to help her make a choice into doing something. Because ultimately it seems she's appealing to, to God, to the experience for for uh, it, let's say, to make the choice of, of where she should be. Now, and before we, we move on into the uh, latter third of the experience, I was quite shocked when I read this because I had heard of certain ideas in uh, Middle Eastern religious, uh, I guess, tradition, Islam and Zoroastrianism, that really resonated with this this symbol that she was enacting. Let me first, I guess, introduce the idea. I'm going to read from Wikipedia, and we can talk about it. So... This is the idea of having to cross a bridge to get to heaven or, or to the afterlife. So the first one I'm going to read is uh, coming from Zoroastrian uh, mythology. The Chinvat Bridge, the Bridge of Judgment, the Beam-Shaped Bridge, or the Bridge of the Requitur in Zoroastrianism is the sifting bridge which separates the world of the living from the world of the dead. All souls must cross the bridge upon death. The bridge is guarded by two four-eyed dogs. A related myth is that of Yama, the Hindu ruler of hell, who watches the gates of hell with his two four-eyed dogs. The bridge's appearance varies depending on the observer's asha, or righteousness. As related in the text, known as the Bunda Hishin, 
If a person has been wicked, the bridge will appear narrow, and the demon, Vizaresh, will emerge and drag their soul into the house of lies, a place of eternal punishment and suffering similar to the concept of hell. If a person's good thoughts, words, and deeds in life are many, the bridge will be wide enough to cross, and the Dina, a spirit representing revelation, will appear and lead the soul into the house of song. Those souls that successfully cross the bridge are united with Ahura Mazda. Often the Chinvat bridge is identified with the rainbow or with the Milky Way galaxy, such as in Professor C.P. Teal's History of Religion. Okay, so that is one such image. And now I will read the other one coming from Islam, which is called Asrat. Asrat is, according to Islam, the bridge which every human must pass on the Yom Adin, day of the way of life, i.e., day of judgment, to enter paradise. It is said that it is as thin as a hair and as sharp as the sharpest knife or sword because of its danger, but in fact it is wide, and at one end it will be hung at the eastern wall of the Haram al-Sharif, Jerusalem's Temple Mount. Below this path are the fires of hell, which burn the sinners to make them fall. Those who performed acts of goodness in their lives are transported across the path in speeds according to their deeds, leading them to Hazul Khazar, the lake of abundance. Okay, so here we have two different related ideas coming from very old religions, which appear somewhat spontaneously here in this near-death experience, although it is not exactly the same. In Sandra's case, she, she feels that either side could tip her into heaven or hell, but in these two cases, the individual is, is I suppose, walking the bridge over hell to get to heaven. So there is a slight difference there but even the even the the name of the chinvat bridge in zoroastrianism is known as the beam shaped bridge and so here we have a collective idea of mankind of humanity this symbol of a bridge to heaven or bridge to the afterlife that is manifested and drawn upon by the experience and used in a somewhat personal way. By personal, I mean she describes walking across a balance beam. And she doesn't really make clear whether that's has any particular association for her, whether she was a gymnast or, or something like that. But that's not entirely necessary. It could just be a balance beam. But there's a clear similarity between these ideas, especially the fact that that one's deeds somewhat has has an effect on the difficulty in crossing, of getting across. Sanja describes it as she's being very careful, sliding one foot in front of the other to get across it. And and the idea in the in the uh, Zoroastrian and Islamic case is that the better deeds one has in one's life, the easier it is to cross. 
the more wicked deeds, the thinner the bridge gets. I suppose there's also uh, the idea of, of, in Norse mythology, of the Bifrost. Perhaps you might be familiar with that from some of the Avengers movies and stuff, <laughs> of the Thor movies. But in Norse mythology, uh, the Bifrost is a burning rainbow bridge that reaches between Midgard, which is Earth, and Asgard, the realm of the gods. The bridge is attested as uh, Bilfrost in the Poetic Edda, compiled in the 13th century from earlier traditional sources, and as the Bifrost in the Prose Edda, written in the 13th century. So here we have the same idea, a, a bridge, a link between Earth and heaven. Although I believe in the case of the Bifrost, it, it does not have this element of walking over hell that the thinness of the bridge expands or contracts and the speed with which one crosses has anything to do with one's deeds. But I might be wrong about that. But what's interesting is this also somewhat relates to the image that we, the symbol that we talked about primarily in, in the last case, in, in the last episode of Sarah's near-death experience of the Axis Mundi, the pillar or pole which connects earth and heaven. And to some degree, this is related. I believe in the case of the of Zoroastrian Chinvat Bridge that it is associated with a particular mountain which is known as the center of the world or the pillar of the world, that this Chinvat bridge has something to do with that. And so there's a relation there, that it is, it is the axis along which one moves from earth up into heaven. And all, if you want to get into that, you can go listen to the previous episode. We talked quite, quite a bit about that and all its variations from trees to mountains to poles to columns and and so it's it's quite a ambiguous type of symbol but in this case i was absolutely amazed to read that and i had first read about it in a uh in one of my favorite books which i quote often here on this podcast uh, on dreams and death by marie louise von franz who is a jungian analyst and and so i thought it absolutely blew me away. The fact that here we have a, a modern near-death experience that draws upon this this image. The the experience itself must be must be doing it in some way. Because Sandra is she describes herself in, in the answers to the questions as a uh, fundamentalist Christian, uh, at least in her original religious beliefs. And so this is this is not something which she probably would have consciously known about. And so what seems to be the case is that a the near-death experience itself draws upon both collective and personal symbols and images as needed according to perhaps the individual's life or their karma they're doing whatever they need that's what the experience reaches into our collective treasure chest of 
religious ideas or, or, or personal religious beliefs to express because there's so many similarities between near-death experiences, but they're all so different and they're very personal. It's, it's, I think I've said before, it's the most subjective thing that we can experience. Dying is, is going to be different for each of us. I think there will probably be broad similarities but I really can't say. It seems as though from people's NDEs that there are broad similarities, but then again, there are these particular images. And so we get to a point where it, it gets very difficult to, to make blanket statements about NDEs, that they're all light and love. They're all joy and warmth. In mo- some cases, they certainly are, but not in all cases. In this case... Sandra sounds quite torn between the opposites of, of heaven and hell, of, of light and dark. And she, it sounds like she experiences a lot of despair there at, at the end of this balance beam, calling out for help. So an experience seems to draw upon a collective or personal symbol or image and molding it to an individual's particular karma uh, needs for their life. I mean, we can't, we don't have a whole lot to go off of in Sandra's case, but it sounds as though she was quite ambivalent towards life. She didn't have a whole lot to live for. And I think that is, seems to be reflected in this experience that there is this, this tension of, of between the two two sides, the two opposites of, of light and dark, of, of heaven and hell. And so this is enacted, it's embodied, and it's, it's absolutely amazing. And so I'm going to read a little bit from, from On Dreams and Death. And, and one thing I want you to pay attention to as I read this is, this is just a coincidence, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to claim that it's anything more than that. But in this chapter where, where I first heard about these heavenly afterlife bridges and in this particular uh, symbol, she, Marie-Louise von Franz, is, is talking about different, different images, different symbols and metaphors of death that have occurred throughout cultures, history, uh, mankind's ideas of, of conceptualizing death. And what's very interesting is, is where we'll start off. She talks about death as a dark fog, a dark cloud. And then, so she, we read a bit, and then she describes the bridge, the Chinvat and the Al-Sarat bridge. And then, as we go down a little bit further, this is just two pages, she starts to talk about death as a cave which is where Sandra's experience goes to in the next next phase of it. And so, you know, that's just that's just one of those things that it for whatever reason the images that she talks about almost lines up perfectly with with what what happened in Sandra's experience and that's I'm going to chalk that up to coincidence and and 
and not say anything more about that, but uh, just pay attention to that as, as I read it because it, it's just fascinating the way these things are, are real in our experiences that, that we should take these old, deep religious ideas with some degree of seriousness as, as possible depictions of, of what you and I may go through whether we believe in it or not. Okay, so here is a couple passages from On Dreams and Death. We frequently find indefinite darkness as a death image in the literature of antiquity. The Greek Thanatos, death, was often imagined as a dark, black, or purple-red cloud, or as a patch of fog which darkens the eyes. Thanatos is more impersonal than the so-called Keres, those fateful personal death demons that carried away the dying person. Thanatos rarely appears personified. If so, then as a serious, bearded, winged man who takes the dying into his arms in a not unfriendly manner. The dark spot as death motif appears in a dream reported by Mark Pelgrin of a woman who died shortly afterward. Quote, As I seem to awaken, I see a colored circle which is thrown on the screen of the curtain that hangs down in front of the window in our bedroom. I am walking gingerly around this circle, which seems to be black, as though I must tread carefully or I will fall in. This is evidently a pit, a black hole. End quote. The circle is an image of the self. In the dream, it is colored, that is, full of life, but appears black when the dreamer comes close to it, like a black hole which she would anxiously like to avoid. Paradoxically enough, in coming close to the self, there emanates from it an attraction to it, and at the same time, a fear of it. The fear of death is thereby in the last analysis, a fear of the self and of the final inner confrontation with the self. The dream of an individual who died a few days afterward was reported as follows, quote, In the middle of a picture, I see a black square. It is a kind of medieval night chest. Flashes of red light stream from it. These flashes point to a sky, painted in pastel colors, mostly yellow and blue, with a radiant sun, on the upper right side of the picture. End quote. The night chest is reminiscent of a coffin, the place of one's final sleep. But out of it come flashes of light, that is, symbols of sudden illumination, pointing to a pale blue sky, a common image of the beyond, and to the sun, a symbol of the cosmic source of the light of consciousness. The flashes also remind us of Origen's concept of resurrection as the spintherismos, an emission of sparks from the corpse, the departure of the soul from the dead body. In Islamic tradition, the deceased must cross over the so-called Surat Bridge, thinner than a hair, sharper than a sword, and darker than the night. But the pious get there quickly like a flash of lightning. The night chest in the above dream seems to me to be a variant of the dark passage. The dark passage is frequently depicted directly and concretely in the architecture of tombs. 
Emily Vermeule reports that Mycenaean graves represent a model for the general geography of the land of the dead, Hades. There is first a downward passage, Dromos, then a narrow gap, Stomion, mouth, and then the high, wide grave chamber, Thalamos, bridal chamber. The grave chamber itself is like a womb in the earth, which the dead enter to await rebirth. Shaft graves found in many excavation areas may be closely connected with the symbol of the dark birth passage. This symbol, which essentially points to a purely psychic experience of a temporary confinement, of fear, of blackout, is thus mixed in an archaic way with the idea of the concrete grave or coffin. In ancient Egypt, the grave was also designed as a cave in which the process of rebirth occurs in the groundwater. The shaft tunnel of a king's grave was described as a cave of Sokar, the mythical place of the rejuvenation and rebirth of the dead. In many parts of Africa, corpses are still buried in a crouching or embryonic position. With the Zulus, for instance, the widow of the dead man receives his body on her lap in the grave, then puts it into a niche, which is called the navel. She places seeds in his hands, which will prepare the deceased for rebirth. After some time, the dead body is brought back to the village as the spirit of the ancestors, where it bestows fertility and protection onto the living. The Hopi Indians of North America believe that the soul of the deceased goes through a small square cavity, the so-called Sipapu, which leads to the Kiwa buildings. This cavity has the connotation of a sacred place and is regarded as the place of origin, that opening through which the Hopi tribe came up from the depths to the surface of the world. Okay, so as I alluded to before, these two pages in on Dreams and Death run through a couple different images that relate to this motif of death as a dark birth passage. That's the chapter that I'm reading from. But, like I said before, this it almost perfectly lines up with this experience, which is incredible, but she begins talking about death as a dark spot or a dark cloud or a fog, in the Greek case, with the idea of thanatos. She goes through a couple dreams and then relates... Actually, I think I've read read this dream before about the medieval night chest. I don't remember which episode I did, but I think I have. And then talks about the bridge uh, in relation to this idea of sparks sparks emitting from the body as the departure of the soul, how that relates to the passage across this bridge, which for the pious, I suppose, in, in the Islamic tradition would be as fast as a spark, as, as a flash of lightning to get across this bridge. That's just one idea, though. And then the passage continues on to talking about different I guess, grave uh, architecture, the idea of, of the graves of the dead. In, in the Mycenaean, in Mycenaean case, 
almost representing a descent or, or moving into the womb into uh and in the Egyptian case like a cave which is where we get into the <laughs> where we get into the final part of the experience which which is just really cool um the way the way that she relates the Egyptian grave or that of the king being like that of a cave in which the rebirth happens in the water it's just (laughs) i don't know what to say about it you know i think i'm just now starting to realize i was always interested in anthropology and archaeology back when i was in college and that's what i studied but this whole deviation into psychology and and the psyche and psychoanalysis I, I haven't really been able to square those and I think I finally understand why with the question of how do you get deeper than archaeological uh, archaeological ruins what do you how do you get beneath the the ruins of of giant I don't know, monolithic structures and and king's burial chambers and, and the things that that those can tell us about cultures and human beings. And the way you get deeper, go beneath that, is to look into the psyche and to look into what would cause a person to want to create something of that scale, of that of that immense amount of effort to take you know talk about building the pyramids and all these amazing structures why would someone go to those lengths and why would it take a particular form such as in the case of the shaft graves uh, which which Marie Lo- Marie Louise von Prom von Franz excuse me hard name to say sometimes connects that with this idea of of this motif of the of the birth passage so i guess the my point in saying that is is to dive into the psyche and to see the motifs and the images which are active even today in each of us that is a way of going deeper than the structures that people built thousands of years ago, of why they take a particular form and what they might mean and what they suggest. And so I think that's why, that's why I became so interested in, in Jungian psychology and, and the idea of archetypes and getting into that because it provides this framework not only to, to better understand certain anthropological evidence of of people's habits and traditions and forms and rituals and all that but but also into people's accounts of dying and and identifying particular images which and and even enacted <laughs> enacted symbolic metaphors in the case of Sandra which which allude to Zoroastrianism like it's it's absolutely profound and it, and it makes me want to learn more about the
the world and what people's beliefs are because I think that they have, I don't think they're invented out of whole cloth, but they have some grounding in, in particular images that exist in, in the psyche, which may be drawn upon by the image-making factor, the autonomous factor in a near-death experience, the experience itself, uh, to be put to good use to display certain ideas or, or whatever is needed in, in an individual's particular case for their life. And, and all, now all of near-death experiences, we, we can only hear about them because they return back to their bodies. And so that's an, a whole other dimension of, is this somewhat created with that in mind for, for us to hear about it? Is death truly like that? There's a, an idea of a boundary, which we even reach in, in this in this case. Um, it's different in, in many different cases, sometimes a door, sometimes a, a wall, a certain threshold which cannot be crossed. In this case, it was in this place of the cave. And in the answers to her questions at the end of the experience, Sandra talks about how if she was able to reach this man which she encounters in the cave, which we'll get into here in a second, she would have been able to go to heaven, that this boundary was reaching this man. And so it has all these different forms according to the person. And although there are these broad broad motifs, these broad patterns which we can identify, but it, it will be definitely something individual, it seems, <laughs> but again, I, I feel, uh, I don't feel like I can make any blanket statements about death itself. I, I do not know what I will experience when I die, nor do I know what it will be for you, but it is fascinating to, to see the constitutive elements of, of people's different near-death experiences and, and grounding them in religious, spiritual tradition from around the world, mythology, culture, ritual, symbolic ideas. It's, it's absolutely fascinating to see them pop up in, well, probably the most profound mystery of, of life, and that is death. So we will now move into talking about the cave. Although the it's there again there are so many things that that this can this is representative of that it's kind of hard to to narrow it down like caves are highly sacred symbolic places cross culturally i just got a book from one of the local bookstores here it's quite close to my house and it's sacred places from around the world and they had a couple different cave sites in there. The Chauvet Caves in France. The This is the caves with the painted animals on the sides, which these images go back, like, I think they said 30,000 years or something. It's such a long time. Absolutely incredible. I mean, and, and the artistic quality in them uh, is is astounding, too. The Elora Caves, which I believe is in India, 
somewhat close to Mumbai, a uh, system of caves which were enhanced by builders and, and people of Buddhist persuasion prayed there, Hindu, uh, Jainism, all, all were worshipped there in differing ways. He's amazing. From the pictures, it looks incredible, just the detail on the walls and, and in the structures. There's, you know, an obvious, I guess, philosophical image of the cave and, and uh, Plato's parable of the, the cave with the shadows being the, um, the illusions that we're drawn into and, and the actual light and getting outside the cave being the real, uh, that which is real. I tried to find, to see if there was any connection there to the origin of, of Plato's story of the cave and inner experience, and it doesn't seem like there's much of a record of it, but the author that I was reading did make many allusions to the fact that there were many sacred, cra- uh, sacred caves around around Greece, some of which Plato may have been to, uh, which wor- worship certain gods such as Pan or or Zeus. I think Dionysus was one of them. There's actually a, a particular cave which is associated with Zeus in his story. This is uh, the myth of the Dictaean cave. is famous in Greek mythology as the place where Amalthea nurtured the infant Zeus with her goat's milk. The archaeology attests to the site's long use as a place of cult worship. The nurse of Zeus, who was charged by Rhea to raise the infant Zeus in secret here to protect him from his father Kronos, is also called the nymph Adastria in some contexts. It is one of a number of caves believed to have been the birthplace or hiding place of Zeus. So that's just one example. I mean, there are so many, and even some of the stuff that Marie-Louise von Franz got into of the idea of the cave being associated with the womb, being inside the earth, back awaiting rebirth, the associations with deities, with the the grave itself, and, you know, throughout, throughout ma- mankind's history, caves are some of the... <laughs> I think some of the earliest uh, provided some of the earliest artifacts of of early mankind. Uh, clearly, we've had a long history with caves, and also the fact that they're quite symbolic. In this case, this is the scene of, uh, which I guess is the answer to Sandra's call for help. And as she is struggling there at the end of the balance beam, calling out for help, just whether it's to be returned to her body or, or to move on, she calls out to the divine, to God, to help her, and the scene changes. She finds herself in a cave. She mentions that she hears water trickling down behind her, which is interesting due to the, uh, perhaps the, Sentence there from 
Marie-Louise Marie von Franz regarding the Egyptian belief of the rebirth that happens in the water, in the groundwater in the back of the cave, in the, in the king's grave chamber. And there's this man, and, and she talks a little bit about her, her vision is usually not that great. She says she's near, nearsighted, but she can see this man very well. And it seems as though from the, uh, from the experience and from the answers to the questions that, that she added at the end, that the man is standing at, almost at the line between the darkness and the light which again is, is going right back through the whole theme of, of her experience, if, if you can call it that, of the, ba- the balancing of, of the opposites of, of dark and light, or the, or the conjunction of them. And he is standing right at the edge. And he, I guess he whispers almost to begin with for her, for her to take his hand. And she reaches and she can't do it. And then he gets more insistent, says, take my hand, and she, she, I guess, doesn't have access to her lower half of her body. Again, the whole idea of, of her body as, as her sense of self has been somewhat variable throughout the entire experience. At first, in the clouds, in the place of nothing, she has no form, I suppose. Then as the balance beam part happens she has legs apparently and then in this cave scene she does not have access to her legs or the the lower half of her body and so it's quite at least in this experience it's been quite variable the the form in which she takes and and the form that the body plays particularly in relation to to enacting certain symbolic ideas cuz here we have in this final scene with the man this this almost intense longing this almost perfect symbol or metaphor for for our lives here on earth i mean there's probably a million different places that we could take it but this intense longing to reach that other person to reach the light and and so the the man tells her that she must never stop trying because she can't reach him. And then she ends up back in her body. Now there's a lot lot here. I mean, like I said, it's highly highly symbolic. It's a very interesting image of of the fact that the light stops. The light doesn't illuminate the entire cave, but it's almost this perfect perfect metaphor of 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 us here in the darkness in the cave of of earth and our physical bodies and there's this dividing line which on which this other this divine figure stands now interesting that she doesn't she doesn't make any allusions to Christ although her description of him sounds i suppose Christ like long hair beard tall that sort of thing but she doesn't identify him as Christ. He, she says it's just a man. And, and the fact that he is calling to her and calling to her, encouraging her, saying you must never give up, you must never stop trying, 
And the fact that he's standing right on the edge between the light and the dark, I think is fascinating because it's, it's almost as if he, he unifies them, which I think could be a very powerful symbol for us as we struggle in our lives to, to hold the tension between all the different opposites that we're confronted with. The fact that he's standing right at the line and that if she can reach him, she will have access to that other side. I mean, there's there's so much you could get into of the, you know, platonic ideas and whatnot, but I found that very interesting. Another detail, which which is probably nothing, and I'm probably stretching into something that isn't there, but, you know, who knows? She, she describes him as... Um, she describes him as almost exactly eight feet away or almost what seemed to be eight feet. And she says that twice, I believe, once in the experience and once in the answers. And so my perhaps contrived observation on that would be that eight is a symbol which we often use on its side as uh, a connotation of, of infinity or that there's... There's this infinite longing or distance between them that perhaps it takes an entire life to overcome. And interesting that it is, it is a man she experiences that is on this, this boundary as the uh, contrasexual to, because she is a woman, the, the man would also represent a union of opposites in a way if she could reach him. And and so, it's just very interesting these these little details which add up to create this picture of the, it's highly almost narrative in its profundity and and it, it what it represents. It's this symbolic representation of of perhaps a, a metaphor for our entire lives in a way, or or particularly what she has to then go through. An interesting correlation is that she. According to the answers of at the end of the experience, she when she wakes up, she doesn't have access. Her her legs aren't working for about three months, and so here we we again have the experience reflecting or rooted in the physical, and particularly what she has to go through over three months. But it seems as though this this moment has defined many many events throughout her life of when she's had hard hard times she she's held on to this this voice of the man of saying you must always try you must never give up to reach him to to go forward and it, it was quite interesting to read how that has affected her life that the voice of this man has appeared again in her dreams and told her to do certain things such as to go to this martial arts teacher which reunited her with with her sons and that would probably qualify as something synchronistic of an inner event leading to something highly meaningful on the outside and so it's just an amazing amazing thing that that she has brought back with her to to share that and like I said, I do not, I do not 
know if you or I will experience something similar. But there are many examples from from human history of, of this sort of imagery which pops up, whether it's deities living in caves or or the going into a cave to worship at a particular altar of of, of a deity of Zeus or or Pan or or these uh, Alora caves in in India worship Buddha or or to perhaps <laughs> meditate in the presence of Buddha or or one of the Hindu deities it's it's very it's very human and it's absolutely absolutely fascinating that it would appear in this highly personal subjective form for Sandra and what it represents is deeply profound our infinite the infinity between us and the divine and and us being told we must always try to reach despite not having legs <laughs> despite <laughs> all of our limitations uh i think that's a very amazing message and as always i i want to drive home the fact that this in reading these experiences I think we can only hope to only hope to be able to find that kind of experience within us within each of us as as I often say that it's it's proof only for the experiencer him or herself that Sandra's experience is hers and my experiences are mine and your experiences are yours and that but what this can do is is hopefully give us the vocabulary and the symbolic the symbolic well language i guess to be able to perhaps look inside of ourselves in dreams and our own close calls spiritually spiritual experiences to find each of us find our own connection with the the divine in our own personal way or to see it or to to notice it sometimes it can be very subtle but to have that is is something profound and and that can carry you through life and i think that's that's part of why i i go into the the esoterica of all these different religious ideas and mythological ideas and that we each need our own myth and we can only find that within ourselves each of us individually it will it could be very very different for each person and and that's okay it's it's quite possibly the most subjective thing <laughs> that that we go through and and that's okay but to each find our own proof to find have our own experience to have our own myth i think that that is a very important thing 
So thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you want to shoot me an email, you can do so at samreadsneardeathexperiences at gmail.com. And check out our Facebook page. And check out the website, which there's not a whole lot on there, but I got a website now, so that's cool. And if you like the podcast, please leave a five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcast app that you use because that just really helps us out. And if you want to support the podcast, you can check out the Patreon page, and I'd really appreciate that. So now, as ever, we will end with a quote on death. Okay, so for this quote on death, I'm going to read a passage from the Vendidad, which I believe is one of the holy scriptures of Zoroastrian religion, though I'm not sure if it's placed in a certain set of texts or whatnot, but uh, you will see that this is uh, quite directly linked to what we were talking about in this episode. The soul goes to the holy Chinwad Bridge, created by Mazda, which is an old path of times immemorial, and which is for the wicked as well as for the holy. There they ask the soul to account for the deeds done in this material world. (laughs) 